Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm David Baddiel and in this episode I'm joined by a playwright, novelist and poet who has written for the Royal Shakespeare Company and the BBC. She has penned two living autobiographies including The Cost of Living which comes out in the spring and she is the author of six novels, two of which were shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize, Swimming Home and the more recent Hot Milk, which we'll be talking about shortly. It's Deborah Levy. Deborah, welcome. Thank you, David. Uh, you've brought along as well a number of objects, haven't you, uh, that have influenced your life and writing. So Hot Milk, I just begin by saying I finished this at two o'clock in the morning yesterday. I really, really loved it. I thought it was really great. I then, instead of going to sleep, went straight on to start reading The Cost of Living. Didn't quite finish that. Could you give us a very brief synopsis of what you would say the book is about? And that's quite a complicated thing to say about a book that is not exactly a realist novel. But Definitely. So Hot Milk is about a mother and daughter who go on a modern pilgrimage to the south of Spain, to Almeria, which is a fishing village. So there are mountains and agave and desert. And they're there to seek a cure for Sophia's mother, Rose. Sophia's the daughter, she's 25. And, and Rose has some kind of limb paralysis. Sometimes she can walk, sometimes she can't. And Sophia has been like a girl detective trying to understand her mother's symptoms what, since she was really very small. And this is the last chance. So that's the setup, you know. It's a, a thriller of symptoms, mm -hmm. looking for a cure, but for what exactly? A relationship between a mother and daughter, the severing of a relationship mm -hmm. too, between mother and daughter in a hot place. Mm -hmm. I wanted to look at hypochondria, because everyone is one or has one in their family. In fact, when I was on book tour in America, one woman put up her hand before I'd even start, and she said, Hi, Deborah, my name's Margaret, I'm a hypochondriac, that's Bill, he's a hypochondriac, <laughs> and there's Benny, she's a hypochondriac. Right. So there's a lot of comedy, you know, in, in the subject. Yeah. And I guess I wanted to look at how the body speaks for us and how it says some of the more awkward, shaming humiliating things that we can't say with words. So what's wrong with Rose? She seems to have always been ill. And Sophia, her daughter, who's an anthropologist, sort of tries to do an anthropological study of her mother. I always think hot milk is her thesis. It's her, it's her anthropology. And they have remortgaged their house. They're not rich. Rose is a working class woman from Yorkshire who married a Greek man, Sophia's father. Uh, he walked out when she was five. And so she has this name, Papasterhiadis, that no one knows how to spell. Uh, she's always been asked at school, how do you pronounce it? And she doesn't quite know how to carry the identity in her name. And it's about that too. Yeah, it's a, it seems to be a novel about identity to a large extent, about fractured identities or about people trying to reclaim new identities or find out what their identity might be. I just wanted to pick up on the hypochondria thing. It's interesting how much the illness is abstract in this book. You never quite get a sense of whether it is a real illness or a psychosomatic illness and all sorts of tests are being run and indeed the clinic itself that they go to 
Dr. Gomez, who is a central figure in it, is described as being a quack, and yet he seems to have mysterious powers as well. Sort of a sort of comedy Freud at some level, he, he seems to be to me. And the comedy is quite big in this book. I mean, not, I don't mean broad. I mean, there is, mm. I found it really mm. funny, lots of this book. Yeah. And hypochondria is kind of a funny subject. In this book, sometimes I, I find myself laughing with Rose's hypochondria, and other times I'm intensely frustrated by it. Well, people who use illness to gather attention to them and to manipulate other people, and there are many of them, and we do it too, are very annoying. But we learn this as kids, you know. We, we learn that if, when we're ill, we get more attention. You know, that magical phrase when children fall down and hurt themselves and, and the parent says, let me kiss that better. Yes. That seems to me such a, such a sweet thing. Yeah. It's, it's a sort of magical, it's like a, a private magic, you know, and it, 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 it kind of does work. So that whole area in hot milk is of interest to me. But I'm looking at um, how Sophia's mother keeps her daughter sort of quite close to her side for much too long in life. Mm. And Sophia, Papastachiades, has to get bolder and braver. So how is she going to do that? Mm. And that's what this book is about. Mm. Uh, well, let's take a listen to the very beginning of the book, the audiobook here of Hot Milk by you, Deborah Levy, is read by Romola Gary. Today I dropped my laptop on the concrete floor of a bar built on the beach. It was tucked under my arm and slid out of its black rubber sheath, designed like an envelope, landing screen-side down. The digital page is now shattered, but at least it still works. My laptop has all my life in it and knows more about me than anyone else. So what I'm saying is that if it's broken, so am I. My screensaver is an image of a purple night sky crowded with stars and constellations and the Milky Way, which takes its name from the classical Latin Lactea. My mother told me years ago that I must write Milky Way like this, Galaxius Kiklos, and that Aristotle gazed up at the Milky Circle in Chalcedici, 34 miles east of modern-day Thessaloniki, where my father was born. The oldest star is about 13 billion years old, but the stars on my screensaver are two years old and were made in China. All this universe is now shattered. There's nothing I can do about it. Apparently there's a cyber cafe in the next fly-blown town, and the man who owns it sometimes mends minor computer faults. But he'd have to send for a new screen and it will take a month to arrive. Will I still be here in a month? I don't know. It depends on my sick mother, who is sleeping under a mosquito net in the next room. That was an extract from Hot Milk by my guest Deborah Levy, and it was read by Romola Gary, who reads in a very... I think she sounds, in my mind, quite like, I imagine, Sophia, to sound like... I love Romola's reading. Yeah, it's really correct in my mind. I wondered if you might want to read the same thing, because it would be very interesting to compare (laughs) to how you might read it. Today I dropped my laptop on the concrete floor of a bar built on the beach. It was tucked under my arm and slid out of its black rubber sheath, designed like an envelope, landing screen side down. The digital page is now shattered, but at least it still works. My laptop has all my life in it 
and knows more about me than anyone else. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually, to hear you read it as well. I would say your reading has slightly more pain in it, if you don't mind me saying, as if you actually remembered the actual breaking of your laptop that I'm guessing <laughs> that this was inspired by. It was. In fact, I'd gone to Almeria to write some of Hot Milk. I'd taken my laptop, and exactly that happened. Hmm. So it worked. I could write on it. But I was writing on a cracked screen. Mm. And this was a complete disaster, as you can imagine. Mm. No one could fix it. In the end, I had to go back to London. It was mm. cheaper to go back to oh, London really? and have it fixed and then, and, and then come back. But actually, it became the leading metaphor in Hot Milk because Sophia hides in her laptop all the time, as we do. And our laptops do know more about us than most other people. All of our life is is there. So the screensaver of the Milky Way, which has shattered, is a little bit like her life. She feels that her own life is broken. And so I used it. Mm. It was a really good accident yeah. to happen. How extraordinary, because as a writer, I know it's like the most awful thing. Yeah, It feels like a major catastrophe, and yet you transformed it. Yeah, it's something incredibly productive. It's odd, isn't it? That was so helpful. Chance, when we write, mm. sometimes is a very good thing. Mm. And the shattered laptop, the screen saver, was of the Milky Way. You know, I, I was fascinated by the idea that Galileo and Aristotle stared up at the real mm. Milky Way, mm. and that I was staring at the Milky Way, that screen saver that was made in China two years ago. So I began to play around with time, mm. uh, the ancient and the modern, because myth makes a, an appearance in the book, you know, begins to tiptoe into the book. Mm. So it was a really good accident. You actually have a picture of it, don't you? That's the first object. Oh, yes. Oh. There's, there's the broken laptop. It's really broken. I mean, <laughs> it's, I'm amazed you were able to work on that. Yeah, you could work on it, but um, not for long. Yeah. So I went back to London, then I returned to Almeria. And I used it. I wrote about half the book in the south of Spain. And then I got intrigued. Just the image of this shattered Milky Way screensaver. And I began to think, oh, yeah, I'm going to use that. Because Sophia is half Greek. Mm. And the Milky Way translates from the original Latin as Lactia. Yeah. From the Greek, meaning a milky band. You know, people often say, why hot milk? And I know it's a title chosen to make everyone feel a bit queasy. Mm. Uh, but the Milky Way, the, the, the stars and constellations are part of the title choice, as well as the whole hypochondria thing, which is, um, you know, when children were little and ill, the Victorians would say, oh, a cup of hot milk with, with honey or sugar. It so, also conjures up perhaps breast milk. And as breast well. milk, the maternal. Yeah. Absolutely. I have a note here, this is something I didn't know, so I'm not going to pretend that I knew it, but that the ancient Greeks believed that the Milky Way was created by a spurt of breast milk from the <laughs> goddess Hera. Yes. So, I mean, that just gives us a sense of, you know, the intricacy of the imagery and, you know, the, of meaning in, yeah. in the book. There's recurrent uses of different imagery, stars being one of them, and to the point that you talk a lot about David Bowie, which we must get onto. We must. 
Pot Milk came out in the spring of, of 2016 and David died in January 2016. Sophia's quite young, she's 25, but as it happens, my daughter, who is younger than Sophia, is obsessed with David Bowie. Mm. And I think, you know, because of the culture we live in now, indeed younger people can be obsessed with cultural icons from before their time. So tell us about what David Bowie, why he figures in this book. Okay, so I was a big Bowie fan when I was 13, growing up in Finchley, Mm. watching Top of the Pops, Mm. wondering how I was ever going to get away from the suburbs Mm. to a big, freakish, glamorous life that was totally beyond me. Uh, There was Bowie on the telly singing Starman, and I was a fan ever since. So Sophia is also a Bowie fan. But that otherworldliness is... important I think and, Absolutely. It, and, it, and it's in the book it's, I think. it's all over the book so Sophia's point is that she's looking at the freakishness of the Ziggy persona at the same time she's being stung this is an odd link mm. but we're going to have to go in this way she's being yeah, sure. stung by jellyfish mm. and jellyfish in Spain are called medusas mm. so the medusa myth begins to creep into the book, the monstrous, begins to make an appearance as something very potent for Sophia. The Medusa myth is about a once beautiful goddess who was cursed by Athena, the goddess of war, and she's given quite a strange power, which is that any man who hurts her, she can look into his eyes and turn him to stone Mm. I think that's quite a good thing to be able to do Mm. actually and the Medusa then is eventually beheaded by young Perseus so the monstrous is beginning to creep into my book via the jellyfish who are called Medusas who are stinging Sophia into something giving her some courage into sort of making her bolder Mm. Um, And then we have the freakishness of Space Oddity, which is connecting to the screensaver of the Milky Way and the sad, broken stars that are Sophia's life as she sees it, as she experiences it. The sort of the monstrous in the book is kind of owned as a positive in, in, in a very interesting way, that it sort of, as you say, stings Sophia out of her torpor into ideas of a new life. And indeed, Dr Gomez tells her, and it's good advice from the supposed quack, that she should go and do bold things like steal a fish, that that will somehow you know, disrupt her life Definitely. in a way that will make things better for her in the long run. Yeah, so, so the question for the reader about Dr Gomez is, is he a genius or is he a quack? OK, let's have a clip. This is where the triangle of Rose and Sphere and Dr Gomez are together at a restaurant. Rose waved her hand to the waiter and ordered a large glass of Rioja. Gomez glanced at me and I could see he was annoyed about the wine. The table was unsteady and had been wobbling all through lunch. He took a prescription pad out of his pocket, ripped off five of the scripts and folded them into a square. Sophia kindly helped me lift the table so I can wedge this under the leg. I stood up and gripped the edge nearest to me. It was surprisingly heavy for a table made from plastic. It was an effort to raise it half an inch off the ground, while Gomez edged the paper into place. 
Rose suddenly jumped. The cat scratched me! I looked under the newly steady table. A cat was sitting on her left foot. Gomez tugged at the lobe of his left ear. I began to sense that he was taking mental notes, just as I had been doing all my life. If she had no feeling in her legs, her mind had made some claws that were pricking her feet. It was like he was Sherlock and I was Watson, or the other way round, given I had more experience. I could see the sense of him testing her apparent numbness by inviting the village cats to join us for lunch. When I looked under the table again, I saw a tiny prick of blood on her ankle. She had definitely felt that claw dig into her skin. One thing that clip, uh, which was from Hot Milk, demonstrates is something you said earlier, which is that it is kind of a thriller. As you said, the hypochondriac thriller, because part of what's at the heart of the thriller is what is wrong with Rose. And that sense of Dr Gomez as Sherlock and Sophia as Watson is yes. that, is they're trying to find the crime and the criminal in this situation. That's exactly right. And, um, and although his methods at times can seem a bit mad... They, they're good. He chops up his octopus, mm. chucks it under the table. The village cats come mm. and sit around Rose. And she does seem to feel their claws and her ankles. So she, so she isn't numb. And there are lots of, there are lots of those kinds of things. Um, I was also book. interested in, in that thing that um, Sophia says in that clip about how I was taking, or he was taking mental notes as I had been. And we mentioned this very briefly about Sophia being an anthropologist and how the breaking of the laptop makes it difficult for her, therefore, to keep the notes that she needs to take. But, of course, you as the writer are, as it were, taking notes all the time. This is a book full of questions about how people behave and about a sort of high-level ultra-noticing of people. And I thought that's possibly why she's an anthropologist, is it's a sort of version of being a novelist. So you observe people to a very high degree. Yes, I think there is I think there is something in that. I wanted her to really be an anthropologist because she needs to understand more about kinship and family. Mm. She's only an only child. There was quite a lot of anthropological research for hot milk. Mm. So Levi Strauss and Margaret Mead in particular, actually sort of old fashioned anthropology mm. in a way. And that was that was so interesting to do she also, right at the beginning of the book, is thinking about cowboys because mm. this part of Almeria is where spaghetti westerns ah, are shot. Right. So, so horses make an appearance and quite, quite cowboy-like horses make an appearance, yes, don't they? Yes, except with cowgirls on them. Yes, with cowgirls on them, on them yeah. But she thinks a lot about the culture of masculinity mm-hmm. in cowboy world and the way that those guys were just alone in this vast landscape and she wonders if they missed the absence of caresses and conversation mm. Mm. and if their lips cracked from the sun. You know, yeah. she, goes on, a, she very, goes on a riff, anthropological that, that, that's riff. That's very much what I mean by the noticing, the ultra-noticing. That's something I really love about the book, actually, is these quite grand and difficult questions are often brought into focus by things like 
did their lips crack in the sun? There's often an intensely microscopic question that will arrive within the universal. I find that really helps to make the book feel both real and yet you know, complex and yet, you know, looking at things that are very large at the same time through very small things. Yeah, I think all writing, as Susan Sontag points out in her diaries really so beautifully, is about looking and, and, and thinking and asking questions. I like it when I read and a writer asks me a question. I, I prefer reflective books to prescriptive books. Mm. So the next object is a sketch given to me by the artist Rose Blake when I was teaching writing at the Royal College of Art. I taught in the animation and illustration department. And Rose, this is uh, about 10 years ago, was one of my students and she was so extremely talented that there was a sketch that she she made it's really quite small but it's huge in my life and it's of a disembodied female maternal breast as if it's actually being exhibited as if it's a picture that's being exhibited at an art show and standing looking at this breast which isn't attached to a woman are two children we only see them from the back a boy and a girl and they're just sort of looking up going oh yeah hmm gazing at it wondering in my view I'm, I'm putting thoughts into their head thinking about it so I love this sketch so much and she gave it to me it's tiny and I framed it in a way that I'm sure Rose would hate I put a big gold frame on it and it hangs in my writing shed Mm. and anytime I'm stuck when I write anything at all not just hot milk I look at this picture and somehow opens opens things up opens my mind a bit and so the breast Mm. is full of milk in my view and sort of and veined and quite pert and when I was writing hot milk which is a book about the maternal in all sorts of ways. And I had to design Dr. Gomez's clinic. Mm. Ah, yeah. I decided, looking at the Rose Blake drawing, I thought, oh, what if it was like an upside-down cup, a bit like a breast? It was made from milky-veined marble, Mm. which is quarried quite near this fishing village for real. And many buildings and floors are made from this marble. And I have Dr. Gomez decide that he will build his clinic from this marble in homage to his late wife's milky skin. Mm. Mm. So there's all that stuff, you know, going on. It's such a weird thing with Dr. Gomez because he's sort of a miracle man at at some level, but also seems ridiculously patriarchal and Freudian. In, yeah, that, in the sense that yeah. he he has built this Taj Mahal, he as has. it were, to to his late wife, and his attitude is often has an element of "I know better than anyone else," and yet he he seems to have the key to mystery at some level at the same time. Yeah, I've always wanted to write a character that was sort of a, a bit shamanistic. Mm. So he's a, he's a kind of shaman in a pinstripe suit. He's really funny, I think. He, as well. I think so. Yeah, uh, you mentioned earlier the very important moment in the book where Sophia 
get stung by a Medusa. Were you, were you, have you been stung by a Medusa? That actually happened to you. Oh, definitely. Um, anyone who's swum in southern Europe mm. um, and elsewhere, I'm sure, will notice that there are jellyfish infestations in the sea, which is heating up. So when I was in Almeria, I swim every day. I swim far out and I got very badly stung by the Medusas. I got interested in their delicacy in the way that I was trying to work out why they were called medusas. In fact, their their long tendrils do resemble mm. the snaky curls of the monstrous medusa. Mm. Let's hear a moment where Sophia, like yourself, has gone swimming far out from the shore. I am far away from shore, but not lost enough. I must return home, but I have nowhere to go that is my own. No work, no money, no lover to welcome me back. When I flipped over, I saw them in the water, the Medusas, slow and calm like spaceships, delicate and dangerous. I felt a lashing, burning pain just under my left shoulder and started to swim back to shore. It was like being skinned alive as I was stung over and over again. When I limped across the sand towards the injury hut on the beach, the bearded student seemed to be expecting me, because he was waiting with his tube of special ointment in his hand. I turned around to show him my shoulder and heard him say, That is bad. Very bad. He stood behind me and his fingers were on the stings. It was agony, but he was touching me very lightly, moving the ointment in circles. And he spoke in a voice that started off soothing, like a mother, perhaps. I don't know. I saw you swim out. Did you not see the flag? His voice became higher. I was calling to you, Sophia. He remembered my name. Sophia Papisteriadis, are you breathing? No. That was an extract from Hot Milk by Deborah Levy, uh, read by Romola Gary. I'm going to say that I think it's quite erotic, the uh, application of the ointment to the Medusa stings. The sexuality in this book is incredibly kind of fluid Mm -hmm. and Sophia has a relationship with that student, Juan, uh, but she also has another relationship with with Ingrid. I wondered if the polyamory, for want of a better word, relates to the Greekness of the book in that the Greek gods were so you know, unmonogamous <laughs> and unworried, because there's a sort of unworriedness about this in the book. No, she never questions or, or worries about the fact that she yeah. seems to be involved in all these different relationships. Two, pe- two people. So yeah. she has an affair with Juan, the jellyfish man, yeah. and with Ingrid, who is a German seamstress. Ingrid takes in clothes from the vintage shop and repairs them. So... I didn't want to make Sophia judgmental. Mm. So I wanted Sophia to experiment with everything. Is it part of an awakening that comes with the stinging, as it were? Yeah, in part. There's a lot of desire in this, but there's a lot of desire for Ingrid and, and for Juan. Ingrid, who 
arrives. She's quite enigmatic, Ingrid Bauer. Mm, she is. She wears um, silver sandals laced up her shins like a Roman gladiator. Mm. And, um, and she sort of torments Sophia. And Sophia because, is, is really obsessed with, with Ingrid. I wanted to mention the sewing there because there's a very strange and evocative thing that happens, which is that Ingrid sews, gives her a, a blouse with what Sophia thinks is the word beloved, uh, sewed onto the lapel, is that right? Or just sort of above the breast pocket. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then later on realises it's not that. Yeah, I, I guess I'm, I'm getting at there is that we sometimes read what we want to mm. read and that our understanding of a amorous situation is askew. It's a willful deception. The artist, Louise Bourgeois, uh, in some ways is, is connected to Ingrid only in that Louise Bourgeois, who came from a family of tapestry makers, mm. considered the needle an object of psychological repair. And there are things in Ingrid's life that need repairing. And so she quite literally has this needle that she embroiders all sorts of stuff on. It's almost as if she free associates with her needle and thread. My other object is the colour of the thread she uses, which is a deep blue, like a very vibrant blue. You have it here? I have. It is very extremely blue, almost glitteringly blue. Isn't it? I had this at home, and... um, I thought, yeah, that's the colour that Ingrid uses to embroider that word mm. on the silk top she gives Sophia. And in the book I call it August Blue. And uh, I'll read a bit okay. from that. It's towards the end of the book. Ingrid said, Sophia, I gave you a gift, but you gave me nothing back in return. It's hard to embroider silk. It's not easy. It slips away. I sewed your name with a thread called August Blue. She was still gripping my hand while she worked the reins of the horse as if she was nervous that I would slip away too. I had broken the rules of exchange. She had given and I had taken, but I had not reciprocated. A gift, like love, is never free. August Blue... Blue is my fear of failing and falling and feeling, and blue is the August sky above us in Almeria. That moves us on, actually, to the next clip, which is about Ingrid. And then she used this peculiar phrase, Mission Creep. I asked her what it meant, and when she told me, I felt weird, because it is a term for war. It was as if she were fighting a battle, but a digression had occurred. Something over and beyond the original mission. I thought again of Margaret Mead, her husband's and all the rest of it, and remembered that the rest of it was her female lover, who was another anthropologist. This must have been on my mind when I wrote that quote on the wall. I did not need to go to Samoa or Tahiti like Margaret Mead to research human sexuality. The only person I have known from infancy to adulthood is myself, but my own sexuality is an enigma to me. 
Ingrid's body is a naked light bulb. She puts her hand over my mouth, but her mouth is open too. I have seen her face before I met her, once in Hotel Lorca, and then in a mirror, when the day was slow, and now she lifts her back, and we change position. Meeting Ingrid is an assignment that had been scheduled without either of us writing it down. It was there anyway, like a bruise before a fall. We've mentioned anthropology already, mm. but it's interesting that it comes up in that passage, I think, because the idea of anthropology is someone who continually notices human behaviour, juxtaposed with the power and desire that is in that, is very interesting, I think, because there's something that it suggests something quite academic and dry about, you know, the type of, I'm imagining, stuff that goes on when you read Margaret Mead, and then there's this just sheer almost non-linguistic force that comes with the body. Definitely. Um, I'm also riffing there mm. on um, that tradition of the colonial uh, anthropologist who went off to study um, others without any kind of reference right. or reflection on their own otherness. So that's a sort of riff that mm. goes that goes on through the book. While we're talking about otherness and familiarity, there is a section of the book where you might imagine that Sophia would go to something more familiar which is her father but in fact it is less familiar it is possibly the strangest at some level part of the book where she goes to Greece talk to me about that part of the book yeah because that includes my other object and that is a Greek vase that is in their rented apartment in mm. Almeria mm. and on this vase is an etching of female slaves in ancient Greece carrying jugs of water on their heads. Sophia sort of feels like her mother's slave. There's a riff about her always carrying the wrong sort of water mm. to her mother. Yes. So she's looking at that vase and she is in a rage and she throws that vase to the floor and it smashes. And she decides that she's not going to pick it up and glue it together. She has to change the story. And it is also the trigger for her to go visit her father, who she hasn't seen for 11 years, mm. in Athens. Mm. The Greek thing was quite interesting, because when I was writing the book, there was the major economic crisis mm. in Greece. And I discovered that a lot of the language used to describe it in the media was very similar to medical language, the infection of debt, mm. the contagion of mm. debt, um, the bitter pill of austerity. All of that was, was sort of very interesting yeah. to me. And so that linked into that section in Athens where she tries to make some kind of peace with her father. Mm. Can we just hear a bit, in fact, of the time that Sophia finally gets to meet her new mother-in-law and sister in Athens. Things got worse. It turns out that Alexandra is a minor mainstream economist. This was useful because I have come to Athens to call in a debt my father owes me for never being around. 
Perhaps in his own mind, he has absolved himself by putting all his late paternal energy into my sister Evangeline. I think he understands that I am his confused and shabby creditor. I should smarten up, stiffen my jaw, put on a jacket and skirt, and walk him into an airless room with strobe lighting and a translator to broker a deal. But my body is still thrumming with kisses and caresses in the hot desert nights. It would be easier for him to have me crash out of his life altogether, yet for some reason he wants me to sign off Alexandra. She is his most valuable collateral. He is proud of her, and I can see why. She is attentive to her child and to her husband. This makes him gentle and calm. But his debts go back a long way. As a result of his first default, my mother has a mortgage on my life. Here I am, in the birthplace of Medusa, who left the scars of her venom and rage on my body. So that's a pretty good example of what you were talking about, actually, about casting that moment during the time of the Greek economic crisis, because the language of debt and default and collateral are, you know, are all in there. But obviously that's translated into Sophia's sense of her family's bankruptcy in one way or another. You know, um, there there are emotional debts that Mm. just can't be called in. Yeah, and that's very interesting. I hadn't really thought about it until I heard it again, that notion of the father wanting to sign off somehow on on the emotional debt that he's called in by making the daughter accept the new wife. Because the father seems to me to be so uncaring at some level, of of so, so much like having brushed that part of his history out of his life. And yet there is still a sense that he wants some signing off, as you say. Yes. I think he's I think he's a sort of Don Draper character, you know, it never happened. Mm. But Sophia is there to remind him that she is there. Yes. And that they share a history. Well, I'd like to keep talking, but we have not that much time, and I want to move on to the final object, which is brilliant. <laughs> it's a very blingy thing. It's a watch that you've brought in, which is the watch. It's the objective corollary of the blingy gangster watch that Rose buys from a stall. Tell us about this watch. You know, I've always loved bling. Right. Myself. But when I was thinking about the kind of watch that Rose would buy on a trip to a market in Almeria with her daughter, Sophia, um, I thought it would be a really massive piece of bling Mm. because Rose is annoyed that all her medication has been stopped by Dr. Gomez. He's taken her off all her pills, so she spends her life waiting for the side effects as if they're they're a lover, as if she's waiting Mm. for a lover who's not going to turn up. Mm. And she gets infuriated and she says to Sophia, I need a watch to see me out. Mm. Sophia says, see you out of what? And she buys an enormous bling watch circled with diamonds from a stall um, she has small, delicate wrists, and this watch is like a, a sort of cupboard on on her wrist. And and um, and indeed, 
the circle of diamonds and the sheer size of it is sort of related to um, I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit vague now I know, because I don't spoiling. Want, I know, because I understand spoilers, what but you're to, doing to, to, you know, it's sort of related to mortality in mm. a way it is this watch that's going to see her out mm. so it might as well be a bling watch and it might as well have shining paste diamonds uh, circling the face mm. it has and, a kind of magical um, it is. quality to it's it sort of magic, and it's not the sort of watch you'd, you'd think a 64 year old woman mm. would buy and so um, I'm with Rose, I'm working against all the cliches and um, all the sort of cultural stories of, of what an ageing body and what, what a 64-year-old mm. might be like. Did you actually buy that watch for yourself or did you just buy it thinking that's what Rose would want? Oh, not for myself. It's for Rose. We have to stop now. I've very much enjoyed talking to you and it's very much given me more insight into this really wonderful book, Hot Milk. Do buy it if you haven't got it already. It's really great. I am also reading now The Cost of Living. Is it two or three living autobiographies you've called them? Yes, it's going to be a trilogy and this is number two. So talk to me just very quickly about what a living autobiography means as you are alive, you are writing it. So um, Things I Don't Want to Know is the title of part one. And that's really my 40s. The Cost of Living Part 2 is my 50s. And that looks at the politics of making a new life. Mm. And Part 3 will be my 60s, but I'm not there yet. Right. Um, so those three decades of female experience, which are usually not documented, um, are given um, the centre of attention in in these three books and the cost of living is published in april this year i'm really enjoying that too i haven't finished that but it is really fascinating thank you so much for talking to me deborah levy uh, i very much look forward to finishing uh, the cost of living and in a decade's time i very much look forward to, to reading the third of your living autobiographies thank, thank you, you very much thank you david After an accident that leaves Alex in a coma, his family fear he will never wake up. His girlfriend is told to move on, while his family must decide whether to keep him alive or withdraw his life support. But Alex can hear all of this, and soon begins to wonder if his accident were really an accident. Did someone try to kill him, and who would they go for next? Alex must remember his past to unravel the mystery of his present, and keep his family safe. I think about the letter. I need to tell her about it, but not when things are like this. I need to pick my moment. She is kneeling down now, pulling on her trainers, stamping her heels down into them angrily, nearly rocking herself off balance in the process. I'll wait a bit. Give her time to decide she likes me again. Try and get her when she's in a good mood. She stands up, looks at herself in the mirror by the front door and puts some lip balm on without smiling at her reflection. Or should I do it now, when things couldn't get much worse? B. There's something... She walks in my direction but doesn't look at me, grabs the rucksack from its spot on the floor by my feet, and I follow her gaze as she looks at the clock on the wall above the sink. No, this isn't the right time. 
Exciting and suspenseful with an unforgettable narrator, If I Die Before I Wake is an incredible debut from Emily Koch, available to download from Audible, iTunes and Kobo.